Well, please turn with me to Psalm 69. Psalm 69. It's page 571 in the Church Bibles, Psalm 69. Before we read, let's pray. Heavenly Father, we thank you that your word is living and active, mightier and sharper and more powerful than any double-edged sword. We pray that as we hear it together now, you would speak to us. We pray that you would so work in me that as I speak, we would hear exactly what you would have us hear. We pray that you would so work in everyone here by your spirit, that this might be an act of worship in which we all see the Lord Jesus, in which we all delight in him, find great joy in him. And may we be changed in whatever way you would have us be changed. We pray, Father, that you would so work that the words we hear would be not merely my words, but would be the words that we would hear if it was the Lord Jesus Christ himself speaking. And we pray, Father, that we might see something of the glory of our God in the face of Jesus Christ. We ask these things in his name. Amen. Let's read Psalm 69. To the choir master, according to lilies of David. Save me, O God, for the waters have come up to my neck. I sink in deep mire where there is no foothold. I have come into deep waters, and the flood sweeps over me. I am weary with crying out, my throat is parched, my eyes grow dim with waiting for my God. More in number than the hairs of my head are those who hate me without cause. Mighty are those who would destroy me, those who attack me with lies. What I did not steal, must I now restore. O God, you know my folly. The wrongs I have done are not hidden from you. Let not those who hope in you be put to shame through me. O Lord God of hosts, let not those who seek you be brought to dishonour through me. O God of Israel... For it is for your sake that I have borne reproach, that dishonour has covered my face. I have become a stranger to my brothers and alien to my mother's sons. For zeal for your house has consumed me. And the reproaches of those who reproach you have fallen on me. When I wept and humbled my soul with fasting, it became my reproach. 
When I made sackcloth my clothing, I became a byword to them. I'm the talk of those who sit in the gate, and the drunkards make songs about me. But as for me, my prayer is to you, O Lord, at an acceptable time, O God, in the abundance of your steadfast love, answer me in your saving faithfulness. Deliver me from sinking in the mire. Let me be delivered from my enemies and from the deep waters. Let not the flood sweep over me or the deep swallow me up or the pit close its mouth over me. Answer me, O Lord, for your steadfast love is good. According to your abundant mercy, turn to me. Hide not your face from your servant, for I am in distress. Make haste to answer me. Draw near to my soul, redeem me, ransom me because of my enemies. You know my reproach and my shame and my dishonour. My foes are all known to you. Reproaches have broken my heart so that I am in despair. I looked for pity, but there was none. And for comforters, but I found none. They gave me poison for food. And for my first, they gave me sour wine to drink. Let their own table before them become a snare. And when they are at peace, let it become a trap. Let their eyes be darkened so that they cannot see and make their loins tremble continually. Pour out your indignation upon them and let your burning anger overtake them. May their camp be a desolation. Let no one dwell in their tents. For they persecute him whom you have struck down, and they recount the pain of those you have wounded. Add to them punishment upon punishment. May they have no acquittal from you. Let them be blotted out of the book of the living. Let them not be enrolled among the righteous. But I am afflicted and in pain. Let your salvation, O God, set me on high. I will praise the name of God with a song. I will magnify him with thanksgiving. This will please the Lord more than an ox or a bull with horns and hoofs. When the humble see it, they will be glad. You who seek God, let your hearts revive, for the Lord hears the needy and does not despise his own people who are prisoners. Let heaven and earth praise him, the seas and everything that moves in them. For God will save Zion and build up the cities of Judah. And people shall dwell there and possess it. The offspring of his servants shall inherit it. And those who love his name shall dwell in it. Well, this morning we're going to reflect on the suffering of Christ. And his perseverance amidst that turmoil. Psalm 69 is a psalm of David, the ancient king of Israel. It can be read as describing his experiences. Others read it as providing a pattern prayer for believers in their suffering. But David's life served as a picture of Christ. And actually, the New Testament draws on this psalm heavily as prophecy of Christ. In fact, in several places, the New Testament clearly acts as if the I, the one speaking in this psalm, 
is Christ himself. Is that because it was David, but Christ is the greater David? Or is it because David was writing this psalm as a prophecy of Christ? I don't know. But I am convinced that following the New Testament, we should read this psalm as Christ himself speaking. Or at least we can do so. Hebrews chapter 5 and verse 7 says that in the days of his flesh, Jesus offered up prayers and supplications with loud cries and tears to him who was able to save him from death and he was heard because of his reverence. Now the New Testament doesn't give us much detail of those prayers. We have a few lines recorded in the Garden of Gethsemane. But what if some of the Psalms are Jesus' prayers for deliverance written in advance? Particularly psalms like this one, which the New Testament repeatedly references to describe events in the life of Christ. Contemplating our Lord's own prayers about his suffering is a weighty thing to do. Uh, The famous preacher Charles Spurgeon described studying this particular psalm as like entering with our great high priest into the most holy place. As we seek to do that this morning, we will have just one aim. To see Christ in his suffering. We'll have five headings, but all the way through just one aim. To see Christ in his suffering and to think deeply about what he endured. Now some passages in scripture focus on the divinity of Christ, his nature as God, creator, sustainer and Lord of all. This is not one of them. Here in Psalm 69, we see his weakness as a man, the suffering he was willing to face for us, the difficulties and struggles that Christ endured. First, we see that he was hated without reason. He was hated without reason. If you're familiar with the Gospels, you'll know that several times in his ministry, Jesus escaped threats and danger. The Gospel writers say his hour had not yet come, but After the Last Supper, he was at the end. Metaphorically speaking, the waters had come up to his neck. Think of Christ in the Garden of Gethsemane, knowing what's coming. Father, let this cup pass from me. Or in the words of this psalm, save me, O God. Imagine that image from verse 2 of sinking in a deep mire. Nothing below you to hold you up. And you cry out for help. And you keep on crying. And what if that suffering was partly because of people who hated you without cause? As it says in verse 4, those who hate me without cause. To extend the metaphor, imagine you treated someone well. You'd cared for them, you'd helped them when they were sick. And then they'd pushed you into a swamp with no bottom and you're sinking. Well, Jesus quotes from Psalm 69, verse 4, over in John 15, 25, saying that these words, they hated me without a cause, are fulfilled in the opposition he faced from people who had seen his good works. You know the life of Christ, you know how much good he did, how much he cared for others, how many people he healed. And they hated him without a cause. Had he done anything wrong? No. He was the only man who had lived a perfect life, but they hated him 
He was hated without a cause, hated without reason. Now, verse 5 of our psalm can confuse some people. If the psalm is just about David, we'd understand him saying to God, you know my folly, the wrongs I have done are not hidden from you. But how can Jesus say that? He had no folly. He had done no wrongs. But actually, that might be the point. It doesn't say he is guilty of anything. In verse 4, they hated me without a cause. They have no reason to hate him. And verse 5, God knows the wrongs he's done. That is, God knows they have no reason to hate him, for God knows everything he's done wrong and knows that that is nothing. They had no cause to hate him because he had done nothing wrong. He was hated without reason. Christian, consider how Christ suffered in being scorned and hated by people for no reason. How he felt like he was drowning, sinking into the depths with no foothold. And consider how in the deepest, darkest night... He entrusted himself to God and he carried on for you. I don't know if you've experienced irrational hatred, if you've been treated horrendously by people who have no reason to treat you like that. But if you have, consider for a moment that your Saviour can sympathise with you in that as he's been there too. Find comfort in that joint experience and follow his example in taking it to God in prayer. But whether or not you've been hated for no reason, Christian, consider this as part of Christ's work for you. Facing hatred from people who had no reason to hate him, facing overwhelming suffering, crying to God for help and carrying on. Jesus was hated without reason. He was hated without reason. And in verses 6 to 12, we find Christ consumed by zeal for God. Consumed by zeal for God. The situation hasn't changed. He's overwhelmed by the opposition, the suffering he's facing. But he prays in verse 6 for others who trust in God. He says... Let not those who hope in you be put to shame through me, O Lord God of hosts. Let not those who seek you be brought to dishonour. He's overwhelmed by the suffering he's facing, but he prays in verse 6 for others who trust in God. He's dishonoured, verse 7, for the sake of God. And so he prays that that treatment wouldn't extend to the rest of God's people. Christ prays that we would never be treated as badly as he is. In verse 8, we see that he's become a foreigner to his own family, a stranger to my brothers, an alien to my mother's sons, it says in verse 8. Do we see that in the life of Christ? Well, yes. Early in Jesus' ministry, when he'd begun attracting large crowds, you might be familiar with Mark chapter 3, verse 21, when his family heard about the large crowds he was bringing, they went out to seize him, For they were saying he's out of his mind. 
Jesus' mother and brothers thought that he had gone mad and arrived to cut him off. He didn't go with them, of course. But can you imagine your own family thinking you've gone mad because you're seeking to live the life God has called you to? Some people are rejected by their families for becoming Christian. I have a close friend who was thrown out of his family, basically, for becoming a Christian. Quite recently, he got married, and his parents weren't there. His brothers weren't there because they would not support him as he lives a Christian life and as he married a Christian lady. If that's happened to you, if you've seen that sort of suffering in your life, in the life of a friend, Christ faced that sort of treatment first. He had his mother and brothers show up thinking he was mad because of his zeal for God. Now we do know from John chapter 19 verse 25 uh, that Mary, Jesus' mother, stood near the cross as he died. So Jesus was reconciled with part of his family by then. That rejection didn't last forever. But how painful the rejection he did face. And why? Why did that happen? Because, verse 9, zeal for God's house had consumed him. He says, for zeal for your house has consumed me. That is why he is treated so badly. Christ was dominated by his passion for God's glory and God's house. A zeal, a passion, an enthusiasm that most people in this world just can't understand. We live too much in time. We're too wrapped up in the here and now to grasp why someone would be so passionate for God or the temple of God. But Christ was consumed by zeal for God. Now in John chapter 2 verse 17, this verse is quoted explaining Christ's passion to cleanse the temple in Jerusalem. The the, the line, zeal for your house will consume me has consumed me. And what, what happens in John chapter 2? Jesus threw out everyone doing trade in the temple because he was consumed for zeal for God's house. But is that the ultimate meaning of this line? What is the true temple of God? That temple in Jerusalem, that was temporary. It's gone. It's passed away. You may know that Jesus referred to himself as a temple. But then... In 1 Peter, later in the New Testament, the church, the people of God, are described as the true temple of God. The true house of God. So when we read that zeal for God's house consumed Christ, was it zeal for us that consumed Christ? Was he driven to face dishonour and rejection because he was zealous for the glory of God and the people of God? Zealous for you? Christian and for that passion he was mocked it says in verse 11 that when he mourned uh, when he made sackcloth his clothing he became a byword to the people people made sport of him they used his name as a swear word they jeered at him, they mocked him Christian consider Christ the one who faced rejection by almost everyone for you and for the glory of God. 
he was consumed by zeal for God. What was it like for him to suffer? What did it cost him to live for you? Think on that and then ask yourself, Christian, how much do you value Christ? Do you understand that for the glory of God and for you, he was willing to be mocked by drunkards, verse 12, rejected by his own family, verse 8, dishonoured, verse 7. Christian, how much do you value Christ? And how much can you learn from him? Christ was consumed by zeal for God. Consumed by zeal for God. And through it all, through it all, Christ was dependent on God, dependent on God. Verse 13, we see that despite everything that happened, he continues praying to the Lord. What's it say? But as for me, my prayer is to you, O Lord, at an acceptable time, O God, in the abundance of your steadfast love, answer me in your safe, faithful, in your faithfulness. Answer me in your saving faithfulness. Despite everything that happened, He continues praying to the Lord. He's persistent in prayer. He didn't stop with one request. He didn't stop when the suffering continued. Christ remained dependent on God. He cries out, At an acceptable time, O God, in the abundance of your steadfast love, answer me in your saving faithfulness. He knew that God was able to deliver him from death and he persisted in praying for it. We sometimes give up or lose hope so quickly. How many times have you prayed for an ill relative before assuming they'll never recover? How many times have you prayed about a situation at work before assuming it's hopeless? How much have you prayed for your non-Christian friends before assuming there's no chance of them being converted? Or, Or that sin that you're struggling with, that perhaps you gave into yesterday, Do you believe that God can deliver you from it? Do you keep praying? Do you persist in dependence on God? Do you know that he is able to help in any circumstance? Whatever pain you're facing at the moment, look at Christ's persistence. Through everything he suffered, Christ remained dependent on God. Verses 14 and 15 return to the idea from the start of the psalm, that image of drowning in a deep mire, the waters closing in over him. Uh, No, Christ was not literally drowned. But what must it have felt like as he was betrayed by a friend, as he was arrested, as he was tried by an illegitimate court, as he was accused of crimes he hadn't committed with no advocate to speak for him? And he knew that it was actually the will of God for him to suffer. Did he give in? Did he stop trusting God? Did he stop praying? No. Right at the end, Luke 23, 46, says Jesus, calling out with a loud voice, said, Father, into your hands I commit my spirit. Christ remained dependent on God. Ultimately, he knew that God would not forsake him. 
verses 16 to 18 of our psalm, Christ prays that God would not ultimately hide his face from him. Answer me, O Lord, for your steadfast love is good. According to your abundant mercy, turn to me. Verse 17, hide not your face from your servant, for I am in distress. Make haste to answer me. Draw near to my soul. Redeem me. Ransom me. God would not ultimately abandon him to death. Yes, Jesus bore the wrath of God for our sins on the cross. We'll focus on that more in a moment. But amidst all of that, God was well pleased with him. Amidst the depths of suffering, there was a certain hope that the resurrection would come. This was not the end. And so Christ remained dependent on God. Christ remained dependent on God. And this Christ, this perfect man who was utterly dependent on God, he was shamed and broken. He was shamed and broken. Verse 19 says, You know my reproach and my shame and my dishonour. My foes are all known to you. Picture that moment when Pilate brought him out before the crowd. They wanted a murderer, Barabbas, released instead of him. And then on the cross, as he was dying to save many, the passers-by mocked him, saying he saved others, he cannot save himself. Now we, we know from John 19 that the Apostle John and his mother Mary stood near the cross. Two. There was possibly three. But where were the rest of the disciples? Where were all the people he'd helped? He was rejected, abandoned, scorned and shamed. Have you ever worked really hard for someone, only to have it thrown in your face? Perhaps you've made a nice dinner for a child and they've refused to eat it. Perhaps a manager at work has said that your work is useless. Uh, perhaps you've decided to make a, a wonderful romantic dinner for your husband or for your wife and they've told you it's horrid. Imagine that rejection multiplied by a thousand for someone who had done only perfect work. There was no weakness or failure in Christ's efforts. When we face rejection, we might have done it partly wrong. Our efforts are never quite perfect. But Christ got nothing wrong. And they throw it all back in his face. He was shamed. And think for, that, for a moment, when he was thirsty on the cross, uh, they didn't give him water or anything refreshing. No, they offered him sour wine, that is vinegar, as it says in verse 21 of our psalm. They give me sour wine to drink. Over in John 19, you can read about that happening. It's not a comfort. Did they try to help? No, they made it worse. Jesus was shamed. He was shamed and he was broken. In verse 26, we read, They persecute him whom God has struck down. Him whom you have struck down. That is, Jesus whom God struck down is the one the people shamed and persecuted. Christ Jesus was struck. He was broken for us. Ultimately on the cross, it was God who struck down Christ. God who broke him. God struck down Christ. If you're a Christian, if you have hope of life eternal, it is because Christ suffered for you. Because he was broken for you. 
We've been thinking of all the ways people abused Christ, and they are many. That was part of his suffering on your behalf. He did nothing wrong. He deserved no suffering at all. He came into this world to suffer in our place, to take the penalty we deserve. But here is the highest point to think of. Not all of the mistreatment from others, but the fact that God actually struck him down in our place. Jesus came into this world to suffer in our place, to take the penalty we deserve. We've done so many things wrong. We never show the right dependence on God that Christ had. We're corrupted and wrong in so many ways. We should be struck down. And this is the highest point to consider as we think on Christ's sufferings, not the way he can sympathise with us when we suffer. That is good and true, but the highest truth is that he suffered for us. God should strike us down for our sin, but Christian, if you're trusting Christ, God struck him in your place. We read earlier that zeal for God's house consumed him. God's house, God's people, consumed him. Zeal for God's people consumed his life. That wasn't just a principle to live by, it was the reason for his death. I don't know what it was like to be under the wrath of God in our place. I know it included everything this, this psalm describes, but more. More than my words can express. God was well pleased with Christ as he suffered for us, but in his suffering, Christ took the wrath of God for us. Jesus was shamed and broken. Christian, he was broken for you. He was broken for you. But if you have not turned to Christ, if you're not trusting in Christ now, if you have not repented of your sin, if you're not repentant now, then his sacrifice, his suffering, will not benefit you at all. Some people struggle over verses 22 to 25 and verse 28 and verse 29. What do we do with this condemnation, this call for judgment on the enemies of Christ? If, as I have suggested, this psalm is a prayer of Jesus, how can the gentle saviour say in verses 24 and 25, pour out your indignation upon them and let your burning anger overtake them, make their camp May their camp be a desolation. Let no one dwell in their tents. Now, we could try and explain it away. Say, well, these aren't the words of Jesus. Uh, they're the weak and imperfect words of David. Now, that would have some problems with how we understand what the Bible is. But also, in Acts chapter 1, the Apostle Peter quotes those very words to describe the condemnation of Judas who had betrayed Christ. The truth is that the same God who is loving and merciful is also righteous and just. As well as teaching on mercy and grace, our Lord Jesus spoke of judgment and eternal condemnation in several places in the Gospels. And his words here in Psalm 69 are of the same kind. Christ came to take the penalty we deserve for our sin. There's mercy for everyone who repents. For everyone who puts their faith in him. But if you do not repent and trust in Christ, then his suffering will be of no benefit to you and you will suffer for your own sin. So for anyone here this morning 
who is not trusting Christ. Please come to Christ. Consider this saviour willing to suffer so much for others. He calls you today to come to him. He was a totally innocent man. He endured shame, rejection, torture, death and more as a substitute for everyone who comes to him. He holds out the offer of eternal life which we don't deserve for all who come to him. So put your trust in him. Come to him. Come to Christ. No one who comes to him will be turned away. And for those of us trusting him, let us marvel at what he has done for us. Jesus was shamed and broken. Christian, he was broken for you. He was shamed and broken. He was broken for you. And lastly, Jesus brought salvation to many. Following his death, God raised him to life. God's salvation protected him. As it says in verse 29, let your salvation, O God, set me on high. That resurrection showed that God had accepted his sacrifice, that task was complete, and so Jesus brought salvation to many. He'd suffered in the place of his people, and verse 31, this pleased God more than an ox or a bull with horns and hooves. In the old covenant, God's people were commanded to perform a variety of animal sacrifices in response to sin. But those sacrifices never really dealt with sin. They showed the horror of sin. They reminded people that they needed forgiveness. They needed God to save them. But Jesus' sacrifice is truly pleasing to God. More than all of those, it actually dealt with sin. And so God's people can rejoice. Jesus brought salvation to many. Through his sacrifice, through his death, a certain relationship with God, a hope for eternity is open to the poor, to the captives, to those who are poor in spirit, feeling weak and incapable of standing before God, to those who are captive to their sins, unable to change. Christ offers freedom. And God will build his city, Zion, as it says at the end of the psalm, originally a name for Jerusalem in Judah, but ultimately the name of the city of heaven where all of Christ's people will be with him for eternity, for Jesus brought salvation to many. We've seen in this psalm that Jesus was hated without reason. He was consumed by zeal for God. He was dependent on God. He was shamed and broken. And he brought salvation to many. Christian, there are many things you can learn from this. You can think of Christ sympathising with you in sufferings. You can think of his example of dependence upon God through the darkest storm. But above all, there is one thing I want you to take from this. What did Christ do for you? Christian, isn't Christ beautiful? The Lord of all, who became a man and suffered like this. For you. Let's pray.
Lord Jesus, we praise you that you, though mightier, greater, more wonderful than we can understand, love us more than we know. That you became a man and suffered like this for us. That you can sympathise with us in our weaknesses. That you can be a model to us of dependence on God through the darkest night. But more than all, that you suffered for our salvation. Lord Jesus, please help each of us to delight in who you are and to cling to you each day. Amen. Our last hymn this morning, number 705, Rock of Ages, helps, helps us to reflect on the perfect security, the perfect eternity we can have as we lean on Christ, the Rock of Ages, who was broken for us. Number 705.